Hey, do us a favor. If you like listening to the show, please just take a few minutes, not even a few minutes, one minute to go into Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. been back on the show multiple times but like you're you're the first person to return from when it was called creative minds before i changed it back to random badassery and i was you know usually i don't go into these like any notes and then when i was sitting down this morning i was like oh i want to ask him about that oh i want to ask him about that so i'm actually coming in with notes that's good that you've prepared because i was terrified I, I will say this: I've I've got a lot of practice in the last year, and it's far more like a conversation than an interview. So that's uh, that's that's what I I kept telling myself. Yeah, when when you and I had coffee that time, we did not have trouble coming up with things to talk about. No. That's for sure. <laughs> Actually, you know, since the last time we talked, um, well, one thing there's a bunch of things that have changed. You moved to Oakland. You said, "Yes, I did." Um, yeah, that was the process. Moved to Oakland. What spurred that on? Um, well, you know, tangentially, um, it, you know, my my father passed away, and we had to sell his house, so that kind of helped um, fund finance that situation. Um, but uh, you know, existentially, um, I I had been wanting to to leave San Jose for quite a while, and but I didn't want to leave the Bay Area. So um, yeah, my wife and I started kind of dipping our toes in the home buying situation in the Bay Area and um, led us to all kinds of random places before we finally, uh, before we decided to to go up to the East Bay. We were looking at like Ben Lomond and all kinds of random places. Um, but yeah, we just, we, we, we both, you know, she's from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, as I discussed in the previous podcast. We both kind of like more of an urban environment with more activities happening around us. So we felt like San Francisco is prohibitive and um, Oakland has a lot of this really great old housing stock from like the 1920s. Um, really cool old bungalows and stuff, which we really liked. And so we, uh, we started looking up here and we got lucky and found a place. So I think most people at least outside of the area, but even some people within the area have this perception of Oakland as just, you know, urban, like the, the more city feel, but then there's so many different parts of Oakland. It's crazy. You know, and tiptoe around it. Yeah. I mean, I think the main reputation that it has, at least in the South Bay is it is the, the, the one that follows it from like the nineties, you know, like the gun violence, the gangsters. Yeah. Yeah. Almost uh, like a Compton, like mini Compton mm-hmm. in people's minds. I have no idea what it was actually like, obviously. I, I wasn't there, but <laughs> yeah, neither was I. Um, yeah, that, you know, and that's funny when you're looking when you're looking for a place um, when you're coming from anywhere else and you're going to Oakland. You're 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 confronting these stereotypes that you've had uh, been holding your most of your life about the area, and it's interesting how that plays out and how it's how you you deal with you know the true reality of what you're actually seeing when you get to looking around here, but it's, it's, 
it is true that it's mainly concentrated in certain parts of the city. Um, there's a lot of parts of Oakland that I've never, I had never seen before. And, uh, you know, it is, a, it's actually a really beautiful city and it sits right up against the hills and there's, um, there are, are, there's so many green spaces to go to. Um, the downtown's very vibrant. Um, and it's a big, it has a big city feel and it has crime. So, um, it's like, I think we all have these perceptions of, of places we don't live, you know, where, like you said, where, whether it comes from something you saw in the nineties, which was, was real, at least for a part of it. But then, you know, you look at places like Berkeley where everybody's like, Oh, Berkeley, it's full of hippies, but there's places in, in Berkeley that look more like what people imagine Oakland to look like. Um, and then there's parts of Oakland that look more like what people picture of Berkeley. Same could be said of Santa Cruz. I think it, when it comes down to it, all cities are kind of composed of the same thing. You know, like there are different parts of everything. New York has so many different pieces as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's really, um, it's, it's exciting actually in this stage of, uh, of, of our lives to kind of be discovering like this new place, even though it's only like 45 minutes from where we used to stay. But, um, but uh, I, I, I really enjoy like the weekends here when we can go to farmers markets and go to see cool art shows and shit. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's like, it's, it's kind of given, given me uh, renewed excitement about my living situation. So. Do you think that, is that like feeding your creative process, like being in a different place or does it disrupt it? Like for me, I'm disrupted at first. And then once I adapt, it's like I flourish. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, even if you change locations, you still have, you know, your, your job circumstances or your relationship circumstances. So yeah, I mean, you definitely have to adjust, but I would say like, um, it's been a net positive for me in terms of, um, creativity. I, I've never, I've never had like a place of my own. So this is kind of like the first time for me um, where I've actually felt like this is my spot. So um, that is a huge boost for, for, for actually my wife and I both like uh, since we've been married and living in the States and trying to adapt, adapt to uh, living together here in the States. Like it's been not the easiest road for us. And um, this is the sort of the first time we feel like, Hey, we're, we're all right. We're, we're good. And, uh, we've got this cool place, um, you know, um, little backyard. So creatively, I feel like if anything, I'm on the up. So that's funny that you should say that because, uh, this morning I've been getting back into the habit of, of journaling daily, which I did for years. And, you know, like you said, you know, life and work and all these things come up and you kind of break these, you end up breaking patterns and comfortability and all these things. So I've been working my way back into it. One of the things I was journaling about this morning was I've I've been struggling with what I thought was just straight up anxiety for a long time. And I'm not going to go really deep in this because the last episode I did was all about this. But it turned out that what I've had is sleep apnea and it's been just putting my body into complete chaos and I thought it was my brain the whole time. And so now, like, I've been using that CPAP thing, you know, like sleeping with the mask on your face, mm-hmm. which is a whole other story. But because just a couple to four days of using that, 
everything in my body is starting to normalize. Like my heart rate isn't all over the place and Hmm. I don't feel like I'm panicking all the time. And what I wrote in the journal this morning was I feel like for the first time that I'm finally settling and that I don't have, you know, this chaos. And, and I'm hoping that this comfort, like you said, or this, you know, this feeling of, of, of stability is going to be a good foundation for creativity. Because I think for like a good chunk of my life, I lived with that ridiculous notion, the romantic notion that, you know, like creation comes from chaos and pain and all of these things. And now I'm old enough where I'm like, I, I don't want that. And so like I that totally resonates when you say that with me where I'm like, yeah, that feeling of like, okay, this is covered. Is I think it's a better place to create from. Oh, for sure. Instability, man. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't that you can't uh you know write your 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 opus with uh, a backdrop of total chaos, but um <laughs> but you know that's that's all, that's that's enough, that's why people kill themselves too. So uh, I f- yeah, I, I I totally feel that I at least personally I need I need the stability and I've needed it for a long time. Um, that's crazy that what you're talking about, like because your your problem was like almost it's like nocturnal. It's this other half of our yeah. lives where we're spent sleeping. And how are you supposed to work on yourself? when you don't even know it's happening, right? Yeah, it's like this invisible part of your life. I can't even imagine that, you know, discovering that like, hey, this is this is about like not being able to, you know, get enough oxygen to my brain while I'm sleeping every yeah. night of my life. That's ridiculous. Yeah, for at least a decade. Because when I, I go back through the symptoms, I'm like, how long have I been having this? Oh, like 10 years at least. And who knows before that when it was minor. So yeah, it's it's no wonder that it kept getting. It would go in stages where it's worse and then better and then worse. But every time it got worse, it would be more intense. And what it is, like you said, it's just like your body going, sleep, air, please sleep. So simple, so simple. I actually, you know, have been just getting back into uh, being being more creative, um, or at least sort of utilizing my creativity. You know, when I when we started looking for this place. I like, I went into a completely different mode. I actually stopped smoking weed. Um, I maybe would have a drink occasionally, but I really seriously curtailed any kind of drug or alcohol use because the stress was so, so palpable. Um, and, and I had stopped smoking weed while looking for the, uh, for the house and mm-hmm. uh, just kind of stopped smoking weed in general, which is like kind of a first for me. Wow. Yeah, so it's cool. How many years would you say that was? Dude, too long, man. Maybe like <laughs> 15 years or so, like of moderate use, low to moderate use. I was never a heavy user. Right. But, you know, I could definitely have a discussion about marijuana use because um, people talk about the health um, benefits and they also talk about the health um negatives right Um, for me it was always um focus uh a lack of focus um also just sort of um trying to smoke so that i didn't have to feel um any of the sort of darker thoughts that i would have um about the world or myself or my relationships so 
you know, I, I guess there was always a part of me that was fighting against it. And so it's like one of those weird things where like, you're like, I can't, you smoke weed and then, you know, you do it frequently. And then, like you said, you don't have that focus, but then you also use it to focus. Cause you know that if you smoke that like, Oh, I can pay attention to just this one thing. It's kind of a weird dichotomy, right? Yeah. yeah. It's never worked for me like that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I, I, I really resented myself um, for, for doing it. I remember when um, my former band, Day One Symphony, was um, kind of get, getting together and uh, recording um, demos and things like that. Um, I would have like, you know, just the day before vocal takes or whatever, I would... I would say, yeah, I'm not going to smoke. And then I would smoke. And the next day I would go in and feel like my voice wasn't hundred percent. And then I would mm-hmm. kind of blame myself for that. Um, and I always had this sort of background anxiety about it. I never really got comfortable smoking weed. Um, I don't say at all. Yeah. You know, I always just, we always get on the most, uh, on the, on the, on the, I feel like maybe it's me. I get on the, the dark subjects with you. Do you talk about this stuff with your uh, with uh, other uh, guests you have on? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm an open book as far as things go, where they go. I'm always curious to see what where they go. I like the adventure, you know. Like, okay, oh, we're going, we're going. Like, I, I talked about cancer with with actually someone I'm going to have on uh, two weeks after you mm. um, is coming back. And last time we talked about his his child having cancer. That's a pretty dark place. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I think it's good to talk about those things. I think people are really sick and tired of of hearing I don't know a better way to say it, but you know, whitewashed conversations. Yeah. And like especially our generation, we grew up with like uh, talk shows on television, where it's like, oh, can you squeeze in a couple questions between commercials? You know, like the commercials were of equal value, and of course they had to be these prepped questions, and they had to have you know this kind of answer. And if somebody said anything funky, then it was in the news for like a week. I think people are sick and tired of that shit. You know, like we all have darker things to talk about and we all have weird things to talk about and inane conversations. Like that's all normal. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's somehow it's, I think somehow it's stigmatized, um, especially at the intersection of like music. Um, I always felt like I wrote darker songs, even when I was writing, you know, upbeat songs, I guess they would, they would be dark and people would say, ah, you know, if you want to get on the radio, you should write something more, you know, whatever, more happier. Um, but I, I always gravitated to that sort of stuff when I was like in high school, I liked Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins and those sort of right. bands. And, um, and I always felt, I always felt kind of honestly, um, I felt a little, uh, um, what's the word insulted that, people would want to change and alter the way I write music to conform to this, some sort of happier climate or happier atmosphere. Um, I mean, I, I totally understand people go to music sometimes to escape and they want right. um, happy escapism or comforting escapism. But um, yeah, I've always had this kind of intuitive feeling that like uh, the darker stuff is uh, supposed to be pushed under the rug. and um, there are places that we allow it to come out. Like clearly I think, you know, in music and art, but uh, in conversation, it's, you know, a lot of people, um, 
or at least in the past, have uh, you know just kind of bit their upper lip and held it in. Yeah, I think there's per, there's pop music which is you know like to, to be able to bring you up and all of this stuff, but the songs that really I think stick with you for a long time are usually the sad ones. Yeah. You know, because you connect to it on an emotional level, like like you said, like the the happy stuff is a, is a form of, of escapism. So it's not going to stick with you in the same way. It's just there to elevate your mood. It's like taking a pill. Whereas you know, like the sad ones is like more like therapy. Like I'm going through this. I'm feeling this. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're sad at the time or not, you still feel the emotion of the song. You know, I've always maybe because I listened to a lot of metal when I was younger. But I was always drawn to the slower, sadder, darker songs because, you know, most of a metal album would be like, and then the one song that slowed down would always be like more intricate and more delicate. <laughs> and I get that's how I, how I, that mindset is what took me into the rest of music. That's so that, nothing you know, else matters. <laughs> or uh, Fade to Black was a great one in the early yeah. days too, where you're like, oh, this is really sad. But then you take that mindset and you go into other types of music. Like you go to the Smiths, you know, like uh, Sing Me to Sleep. Mm-hmm. I don't know the tune, but... That's a really sad song. And some people think it's about suicide. Some people think it's about something else. But And then the rest of the Smith stuff is more up, even though like he's kind of a depressive. Now he's apparently a racist. <laughs> no. uh, I don't know how you go from like being ultra liberal to being a, you know... National Front racist, but anti-Semitic or something. I don't know. I, I I I've seen some of the headlines, but I can't remember what his deal is. Yeah, something that he was like railing against Chinese people or something. Oh, right. I don't know. He doesn't deserve the time to be talked about if that's <laughs> what he is like now. Um, but yeah, I find, I've always found that interesting. That like, uh, did you did you see the most recent episodes of Black Mirror yet? The one with Miley Cyrus. Yes. No, I haven't watched that season yet because um, Black Mirror takes like a certain like mood. mood for me to be in. <laughs> I know exactly. I waited like a week before I watched it. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I just want to watch comedy right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I would, I would suggest at some point when you, when you watch that Miley Cyrus one, keep in mind this conversation because okay. essentially I didn't even realize it until over half the episode was over, but like her character is a pop star and she has this one hit song. Um, it's like a new one or whatever. And I kept like listening to it. I'm like, this sounds so familiar, but it wasn't clicking what it was. And then all of a sudden I just started actually listening to the words and it was like, I'm going to get what I deserve. And I'm like that, holy shit, this is head like a hole by Nine Inch Nails. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and what she had done is they, or what whoever helped her with the song, they had taken the Nine Inch Nails song and made it into like a pop song, put it in a major key and then changed the lyrics into like more like motivational Instead of, you know, like, I'm going to get what I deserve. And, you know, like, I'm going to earn this. And it's it's so funny because I feel like that's what people... Going back to what you're saying, what people want to do with music. You know, I have this dark song and they go, let's put it through this filter and make it into this. Let's take it from black to pink. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite bands, obviously, Radio Radiohead, is I love them. Uh, I've always loved their music. Um, you know, when they started to kind of get bigger... Uh, they just caught so much flack, you know, and the things that people would say about them and still do say about them, I just feel like are kind of ridiculously unfair to the band. Um, because I don't think that those guys have ever, you know, they're not, I don't want to, you know, talk shit about you too, but 
U2 is a very like arena rock out in your kind of out there, like, you know, right. getting your arms out type of band. But Radiohead's always kept a very low profile. They've just, uh, just kept the focus on the music. Um, they've done, made some really bold choices, but they've never like went in, and done a bunch of interviews to explain the choices. So they've kept some mystery around them. And, um, uh, one of the complaints I guess I've heard is, you know, is Tom York's voice sounds whiny or sappy or he's always forlorn. Um, I don't know. I, I, I've always had trouble kind of understanding where people come from critically sometimes mm-hmm. with when it comes to sort of like the artier of the bands that exist in the world, you know, where someone's just going to be like Coldplay is the most overrated band of all time. It's like, they come out with these sort of very grandiose statements. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is, Chad. What do you think? I, I just think it's weird that people have this, this need to pocket things and like, okay. And, and assert their opinions on things. You know, like if you like something like, Oh, I like this movie. There is any put, especially if you put it online, there's a guarantee somebody's going to come along and shit on it. And they come along and shit on it because they have to, right? That's what they think. Like, oh, I'm just telling you what I feel. And it's like this need to like assert that, you know, like, hey, I was enjoying something, but you, your opinion is valid, but you want to put it here. So it's like ruin my, my high, essentially. And I, I've always, that's always driven me nuts. Like, for example, like you were saying the thing about Tom York's voice. I was one of my favorite bands, also Radiohead, but um, another one is The National. Mm-hmm. And his voice in, in, a, in a lot of ways is almost the exact opposite of Tom York's. You know, it's like deeper, baritone, slower, almost sometimes even monotone. And a lot of people, the complaint that they have about that band is mopey, boring. And to me, all I hear is like the intricacies in their music. And like this, this in, in a lot of ways, like Radiohead, there, it's about the intricacies and the beauty and, and, and the fragility of the songs. And I think what it is, is people aren't willing to invest the time into things that they don't get immediately. Like they, yeah. and they go, oh, whiny, boom. And then that's it. And it's whiny forever. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I, I, I think that it, it kind of comes down to, uh, you, you know, I, I always try to put my, my, um, my mind or my listening ears in a place where I'm just kind of receiving what's coming towards me. Um, at least the initial exposure for me is, is, is uncritical. I try, I try to put myself there. Of course, obviously I have, you know, opinions of things. Um, certainly I've, I've had some pretty, pretty, I've gotten into my, got myself into trouble making comments <laughs> about pop music in front of certain people. But, um, but I think that's what it is. It's like, it is the, that's the investment in time or it's just plain being able to hear what something's, what someone's doing or a band's doing. Um, like, you know, that singer, that British singer, Anthony, uh, Anthony, and the uh-huh. Dark? like, I don't, I don't know their music. I've heard, maybe heard like three or four songs, but I can just immediately like hear his voice and go, oh, wow, that's exceptional. That's, oh yeah. That's different. You know, it's like Mark Allman and, and, uh, uh, boy George mixed together in a way. Yeah. And you could easily come out of that and be like, well, that's annoying. What is that? You know, mm-hmm. it's different. But um, my mind typically works in a different way. It's sort of like, well, that's sort of like 
a lemur or something that I just don't come across very often. And, and it's exotic and kind of interesting. To me. Maybe it's not like what I'm going to listen to all the time, but, um, you know, I don't, I'm not dismissive of it immediately. Of course, you know, everyone's different. And so this, this, uh, this, this phenomena of making quick judgments of things and being really angry at a band because the way they sound is never going to go away. It's just, going to be one of those things that continues to exist among people yeah there's this weird thing i've I kind of i think it's a strange almost prejudice for for singers in a way that doesn't apply to other musicians you know like if you are a drummer that doesn't sound like any other drummer you're exceptional no matter what if you're a guitar player that sounds like other guitar players you're just another guitar player but if you're Jimi hendrix and you do something nobody else has done that's extraordinary but if you're a singer who stands out you're ridiculed. Whereas, you know, it's like almost like people like, why don't you sing like everybody else? You know, like, for example, like uh, people with strange voices, like uh, Willie Nelson has a very strange voice. Nobody sings like Willie Nelson. Neil Young is kind of an awful singer, Mm -hmm. but kind of amazing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, Ozzy Osbourne, who sings like Ozzy? I don't even know how you sing like Ozzy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like an unusual timbre of a voice. Yeah, I've never heard those sounds come out of another voice. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or even ACDC too, right? Both singers. Like, you, know that, you know that group that I think it's a girl duo called Coco Rosie. You heard of them? Oh yes, I love them. Yeah, and they they're like they're just strange sounding, mm-hmm. um, almost childish at certain points. Mm-hmm. It's and true kind though. Of the singer um, I feel is often held to a different standard for sure. Yeah, well, it's it's like okay, you're the voice, so therefore you must be the relatable element, maybe that's what it is. You know, like, okay, tell me a story. And that could have a lot to do with the history of music. That's what's cool about it, is that like the people that are going to relate to uh, Madonna's voice are going to be different than the people who relate to Eddie Vedder's voice or that relate to Madison's voice. That's just so cool because, you know, it it ends up drawing in these idiosyncratic demographics to uh, to see these shows and, and to see these people. Like I was, I went to, um, uh, saw Florence and the Machine recently at the Concord Pavilion and I, I don't follow her music. I, I think she's a great singer, but I, I really wasn't like, I didn't know what to expect or anything. It was a largely, it was a largely female audience, but there was, there was a lot of diversity in the group too, among the people that came as well. Um, and, uh, I don't know. She has, she's, she presented her, she's for, for a start is the phenomenal sounding band and voice and the show was amazing but she 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 presented herself in like a very vulnerable way when she would talk to the audience she would talk about mental illness she would talk about struggles she would she would get into it in, on such a deep level where you felt like oh my god something's wrong you know right. she talked about her drug use um and then at the same time, she had like kind of this r- amazing ability to draw the audience in, not only when she was talking to the audience, but when obviously when she's singing and performing. Um, and, that, you know, that just relates to what I'm saying. Like, you know, the Florence demographic, I thought was like, wow, this is this is a this is a very unusual and interesting kind of group that she's pulled in probably all across the country and the world when she plays. Yeah, there's there's a 
a strange journey that like I think happens after artists like you know, like she had I'm not saying that she's like unknown now, but compared to that peak where they were yeah. just huge, mm-hmm. I think what happens after that is often the most interesting journey because now that they have that access to these other musicians and other producers and other, you know, collaborators and stuff like that, usually the journey gets more interesting. Mm-hmm. It's more intricate and it's more difficult for people um, to relate to instantly. You know, like for example, I think of Paul Simon, right? Simon and Garfunkel, huge, huge. But then the musical journey he went on after that was far more interesting, exposing himself to different artists. And he got very lucky in the sense that Graceland became another hit, but could not have have got to Graceland if he hadn't been in Simon and Garfunkel first and experienced all those different parts of the world. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, me too. Uh, um, Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know any of, I just, I knew that Florence's earlier work, you know, the, the first couple, the first album, and I think the second album had a hit on it or something. There was this huge unaccounted for period for me, including the re- most recent album. Right. Me too. Uh, there, there was, so, there was, it was just so much obvious maturity there um, in her voice. Um, and that she had felt, they gotten to a point where she felt so comfortable talking to her audience about such intimate details of her life. I thought, I thought that that was, I was seeing someone's in the sort of mid, I want to say late, definitely mid career um, where there's still so much more that can happen, but she'd already, she's already given so much as well. I thought it was pretty remarkable. It was pouring rain too. So one of those kind of crazy shows where you're in the elements. I think that relates back to kind of what we were talking about with, uh, you know, like interviews and stuff like that. You know, this idea of like that openness is so much more interesting. It's hard to get there. Let's let's be honest. It's not easy to get to where she is to be able to do that. But but it's far more interesting to hear somebody talk about those things, whether they be dark or whether they, you know, be mundane even. But to be open like that. And I think that when that happens, the people that connect with that, that it's like the sad songs. That's a lifelong connection. The people that she connects with when she says those things, they're going to be fans of hers for her whole life because she's touched them or reached them in a way that you can't with this, you know, fake, you know, like I said, everything exactly the way it's supposed to be. And like a a great example of this is, are you familiar with Nick Cave? Oh yeah, for sure. So Nick Cave has started this thing. I don't know if it, if it's spurred on by him recently, a couple of years ago, he went through a horrible, horrible thing. Mm -hmm. um, The death of his son and wrote a a gorgeous album and now he does this thing where he has a website called the red hand files and it's literally people ask questions it's a newsletter and an email newsletter and people ask questions and he literally all he does is just answer questions and it's so beautiful and so touching and so bare and so honest i gotta check that out that sounds awesome I mean, almost every one of them will move you in some way. There's, there's, a, I'll find a couple of them and uh, I'll post them in the show notes for this and I'll send them to you that are just so moving. Um, it's, it, one was, you know, between him and another person who I think from the sound of it might be somebody famous that he's not saying their name of, but somebody who publicly lost a child recently. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the journey for him and reading the book Pinocchio. And just 
unbelievable. Um, but that's that's that that connection, the things that he's saying here, and the, the people that he's talking to, he's doing something that he hasn't done before, in the sense that he's he's become more human to them. Yeah, and you know, like he's he we know we know him of him as like a great songwriter and a lyricist and writer in general. Uh, but you know, with, with art, you get the you you have uh, an incubation period, and you can take your time, and you can have your editor look at it, and then eventually it comes out, and it's in a fully fleshed out form. I mean, you can do that only so much with question and answer. Like, I think you're probably getting more of the realness of the way he actually thinks um, in that format, which is probably the, the whole idea of it, anyway. And it's very interesting when you think about you're interested in somebody like Nick Cave because of music, you know, like he's a persona. But then where that ends up leading you to, or his journey in particular ends up leading you to, is this place where that persona is completely ripped away. So you end up with Nick Cave that's just Nick Cave, which is what he started as before the music. So it's almost like he brings you on a journey back to who he always was. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I think it's very rare too. It is. Yeah. We, we, I think it kind of comes down to uh, how, you know, how much, how much we, we hide about ourselves. Um, and I think that sometimes like if you go too far into um, trying to project confidence project a certain persona um, and and that persona starts to deviate from what's actually happening underneath the surface that's when um, you know you can get lost um, and maybe even to some extent destructive either towards yourself or towards others you know um, the other, I think it was yesterday sometimes it's hard to keep track of the days <laughs> uh, I've, I had this idea okay. uh, I was going to take you know, there's certain bands or maybe bands isn't the right word, certain artists that are quintessential to you. You know, like uh, for me, the Rolling Stones is always going to be one of my favorite bands of all time. And I started thinking about, I'm like, how often, how much time do I spend listening to those artists instead of just filtering around, listening to random things, which is so easy and awesome with streaming. But how much time do I spend invested in just those main artists and the answer i came up with was unsatisfactory right like that's just not enough time so i I made a playlist and literally i just took i originally started i'm like i'll find the top 10 artists for me and i'm going to put their entire catalog into a playlist and then i'm just going to shuffle that whenever i want to listen to music so that i'm always getting stuff from and like learn their catalogs better getting the goods and of course that top 10 i couldn't get to top 10 and end up being like top 25 bands but what I noticed after putting that together and playing it for a little while is this, there's one thing that's common almost among all the ones that I particularly picked, that there's something broken about all of their music. And it's something that you and I talked a little bit about last time was um, you were you were learning to deal with imperfection. And that was in my mind as I was listening to this and realizing that, like, oh my God, it's it's the imperfection of these artists that I like. Yeah, you know, it's like the, it's the later Pearl Jam that's really interesting when they try not to write pop songs. It's the you know it's the, the Rolling Stones when they're kind of falling apart because of of heroin addiction. 
that they write these amazing songs because the songs aren't perfect. Um, there's just there's pavement who has never written a song that is normal. There's all these little broken pieces, and that's what's interesting. Yeah, you know, you don't want to see. I was, I saw something. Um, this conversation is fluid, Chad. So I'm going to say this. I saw, I saw, I saw something about how, like Sony Music or I don't forget what it was, was 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 using AI to like just make drum beats or something, or to like sort of just robotic drums for to record music, etc. And uh, I'm sure, I'm sure that's just going to like take off, and you know, um, I'm sure record companies if they can edit people out of the situation, they will because they have to pay people. They don't have to pay robots. Well, it's uh, been done so many times before where they'll bring in band members of bands. Like, oh, you guys aren't good enough. So, so they'll literally bring in another band to play that band's music on the record. Yeah, I, I, you know, I remember um, when, and I won't mention this band's name. They probably know who they are. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there, there was a lot of drum editing going on and... Uh, and it, it was, it was, uh, it, 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 you know, it's become the norm for, for, for most, I think for a lot of, um, most mainstream music, for a lot of mainstream music. So I don't, I don't like blame them for going that route, but I always remember being like, then that's why play? You're going to replace everything. But it, you know, as it relates to what you were saying, it's like, you can't, you know, the janky guitar is always going to sound like, way better than uh, something that's absolutely been perfect and done a hundred thousand times. You know, the fact that Kurt Hammett played the solo for um, nothing else matters, you know, he's like slaving his way, trying to come up with a solo for it. And Bob rocks just shaking his head and Lars is just like, this sucks. And eventually he fucking writes, improvises like this, this solo that we're just, we're going to know for the rest of our lives. It's like, they got that on tape. Uh, no fucking robots going to, going to replace that. I don't think. No. I mean, I talked to, there was an episode I did with Jennifer, Otter, Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. And she's, um, she studied music. Like she's a, she's a doctor in the study of music and um, essentially fandom. And one of the things we talked about was, I think that what we're seeing is a split where we're going to have, we already kind of see it, but you're going to have two kinds of music. You're going to have pop music, which is going to be algorithmically generated. It's going to be exactly what sells and it's going to be exactly what they think people need. And then you're going to have the other music, which is the music that people make from their hearts. That's broken. That's imperfect. That is just what, what we until this point in history have always considered music to be. And you'll have both. One is to make you, like we were saying earlier, one is to make you feel better while you're in the elevator or while you're shopping. And the other is to, you know, connect with someone. Yeah, ironically, that's already, you know, maybe maybe this is what you're saying, but that, that split's already occurred, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, a lot of music is just created digitally, digitally now. <clears throat> and the only real the only real sort of way to get ways to go that is to basically replace the humans with actual computers. But, but, uh, but it, you're, you know, that split to me has already happened. It's like, there's music that just kind of lifeless. 
um, it, it does what it needs to do. Usually the stuff that I hear playing in like H and M or something. Um, and you know, the, the, it's very pleasant to listen to. I'm not going to like say that it's not unpleasant to listen to. And I can see how it could be popular. Yeah. It would but, be a bad algorithm if it wasn't pleasant. Right. right. But, um, but the patterns don't necessarily appeal to me, you know? Um, like if you've ever, if you're a musician and you've, um, you know, if you're a guitarist or a pianist or, or, or someone on an instrument like that, and you've played your major and minor chords, and then maybe you get into jazz music for a little while and you start to figure out how jazz works. Then you realize like, dude, there are so many permutations of this shit. Like the stuff that we listen to on the radio it's just a small little fraction of what's possible. And uh, it's driven by market forces rather than actual, like a desire to innovate. But if you've been on these instruments long enough, you start to see, Oh my God, there's like so much, you know, there's so much territory that's been unexplored. Um, like if you listen to Claude uh, Debussy or Eric Satie, these French dudes that kind of around the early part of the 20th century that were, basically kind of getting into jazz classical kind of vibe, which was not a thing at the time. Um, that's why the music stands out so much because they kind of threw the classical paradigm and they turned it upside down. And I don't know this, I guess they, I don't know if they call it impressionistic music, but. Right. Uh, yeah, but it's it, more like a soundscape than it is like a, quote unquote song. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the drawing inspiration from like clouds and water. It's like the proto um Brian Eno in a way. Yeah. And there's these flourishes and uh um and there's dissonance and I, I can't even, you know, um explain what it does to your mind. Is but if they're able to do that to 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 Bach, you know, and to change it like that, then um I feel like anything's possible. There's so much more terrain out there to be explored musically well what you remind me of too is uh, this unfortunately i can't remember where this came from but there was some podcast that i had heard and they were talking about the song hey ya by outcast mm -hmm. and apparently there's this program that record labels now run music through um, particularly possible singles and when they run it through it gives them a probability based on sounds, rhythm, timbre, all these things, to whether it'll be a hit or not. And now, Hey Ya wasn't written for that. Hey Ya is kind of a weird song. But they put it through that thing and they're like, this is like a really high score. I don't know if it was a 100 or whatever, but a really high score. Guaranteed to be a hit, according to this program. And when Hey Ya first hit the radio, it was a flop. It nobody. It was too weird for radio, right? It was too outside of the norm of what the radio... So what they had to do is they had to start manipulating that by... There's a trick that radio will do is they take a new song that people maybe aren't digging yet and they sandwich it either between two hit songs or the same hit song played twice. So like, uh, you know, like whatever song is popular, then comes Hey Ya, and then that song again. And then by... From almost like associating those together, they were able to make Hey Ya a hit. Basically, what you're saying is that music executives have to be uh, um, psychologists, uh, social scientists. <laughs> and programmers, yeah. Another thing that you're reminding me of is 
you know, we're talking about imperfections. There's this wonderful podcast called, um, it's called Showcase by Radiotopia. And essentially what it is, is it's a bunch of short run shows. So maybe like, uh, this show is on for five episodes, then it's gone. And then they bring in another show, but they're all in the same feed. And the first one that they ever did on there was by the drummer from the band Galaxy 500. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what's his name? Damon Krakowski. And he did, I think, six or seven episodes of one called The Ways of Hearing. And what he explored, it's almost like a six-part documentary, audio documentary. And what he was trying to explore is what has changed in the movement from analog to digital music. And the first episode is time. And what he talks about in that one is how when they were recording the Galaxy 500 albums, he was, as a drummer, like he wasn't playing to a click track. So when you listen to the old Galaxy 500 albums, you can kind of, if you really pay attention, you can hear him sort of speeding up and slowing down because he's not playing to a click track. And that was kind of the norm. And then the click track became the norm. And then, you know, everything slowly, that's how I think the automation slowly crept in. As you know, first it was a click track and then it was auto-tune. And then it was, you know, all the shit we're talking about. Well, I, you know, I, I've always had this suspicion and feeling, you know, that um, it's, I, I think it's the truth, but that record companies or, you know, the gatekeepers, if you will, they, they need predictable results. And, and so they need, they need uh, the music to be um, shaped in a way where they, they get those predictable results. Um, and, you know, having music make the transition from analog to digital really, really helps their cause because um, now you have control over, you know, absolute control over time, tempo, uh, timbre, um, all the musical elements, uh, the, you know, the, the song structure arrangement. I mean, you always had control over that, those things to some extent, but, um, but you couldn't necessarily, I mean, it was not as easy to have a band do a whole take of something and then like cut pieces out of it and rearrange it and make that sound fluid. Whereas now, um, you know, you can easily cut, paste, subtract, add, augment in the digital realm and uh, no one can hear the difference. Um, so it's always to me felt like, you know, that at least in the commercial music world, obviously there's a lot of other markets out there, but in the top, top commercial music world, things are very tightly controlled, um, to, to provide, uh, for predictable results. Well, I mean, great example of that is this podcast, right? There are little hiccups and things like that. For example, in this episode, there'll be little pieces of things that we'll cut out, you know, because there've been times that your your Wi-Fi or my Wi-Fi, one of the two, has cut out and we couldn't hear each other. I'm not leaving that in. That's going to cut out. You know, like I have that control. I'd love to say that I leave that stuff in, but I know listening to it's boring. <laughs> but it's, you know, what you have to, everybody has to draw that separate line. But there is something, you know, I, I've, I've struggled with this digital analog thing a lot. And like, I wish, I mean, there is a way, but a not as difficult way for me to record these on, you know, like magnetic tape and then put it out. That would be amazing if I had a studio and I had all that kind of equipment, but then, you know, now you're looking at this monetary investment for that aesthetic difference and we're just doing talk. But with music, I still think you can hear the warmth 
in in music that's recorded analog. It's it's there is a subtle difference, and I know that most people don't notice, and I probably am not a soundophile or audiophile, I should say, to be able to tell the difference. But between hearing something that is digitally remastered in the original, something is lost in the sense that it's digital digital music is sampling. It's not actually the recording of the sound. It's literally millions and millions of little samples, right? And our, our ears and our brains have to be registering that in a different way. And I do feel like I listen to music on my phone all the time. And I do feel less engaged with the music. And I don't know if that's what that is. It certainly could be. I mean, what would you rather do? Like, would you rather see a picture of a dolphin or would you actually rather see a dolphin? I mean, I think most mm-hmm. people would actually rather see the dolphin. So it's like when you're translating a musical idea, it's like how, you know, how, how close can you get to the original? Obviously, that's why pe- people go to see um, bands and artists live because they want to see they want to see that shit right in front of them because there's a certain um, primal power in seeing the person that created this thing you like just doing it right in front of you. Um, so uh, digital music and, you know, 128, um, you know, I forget the megabytes per second or whatever that the, the MP3s are encoded at, the further you get away from the original source, I think that just whether you're a uh, audio snob or audiophile or not, you're going to sort of perceive that. Yeah, I feel like almost as we think about, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, it's like a record in a sense, originally a record was memorabilia. You know, it was a reminder like, Oh, this is that song that they played. It was a reminder of you know, this band that existed. And then slowly over time, the memorabilia became the thing. And then the live show became the advertisement for what was essentially originally just a reminder of what the music sounded like. That's kind of weird. We're lucky that we're, um, that we, that we sit on the cusp of this thing, you know, for me, I'm a Gen Xer. So, I mean, I started out recording on cassette tapes and then I went to digital and, then digital and then completely digital. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, uh, I've never been like outright resistant to it, but I've also kept one foot in sort of the world where I grew up um, because it has value too. It has, um, and I love listening to, to uh, really old stuff, you know, like Nat King Cole or stuff that, you know, that was done uh, Duke Ellington that was done a long time ago. And, uh, this stuff has been digitally encoded, of course, but it was fully analog and not on like the greatest gear ever, the best at the time. And um, there's just no, there's no um, making it sound, I don't know, shinier or you, there's, it, it just, it just oozes this, time period that that is unmistakable and there's no way to like digitally remove that or um or take take it away um and so when these when people try to kind of capture that sort of thing nowadays i feel like it's hard it's really hard unless you have the original analog gear it's really difficult i think that's what a lot of people have trouble understanding why 
there's been a resurgence in vinyl and a resurgence in cassette. And I think it's just literally they don't know that vinyl and cassettes are, they actually contain the music. It's not samples of the music, like digital stuff. That's why they wear out. Because a really great example, I'll put this in the show notes. So Jack White has that Third Man Records. Mm-hmm. And they have an actual, they actually press vinyl in at Third Man Records. They they press it there. But what he has in the front like gift shop area is essentially a, it's like a little stage, but it's like a little recording area type thing. And if you record something there, everybody can record one song. If you record a song on that, it runs from the mic directly to vinyl. So it's literally, it's not even being recorded. It's being, the sound's being pressed right into the vinyl as you play it. And I mean, that's analog of all analogs. That's crazy. And it's, it's so uh, the thing I'm going to put up is the Adam Savage. I forgot his name for a second. The guy from Mythbusters mm-hmm. visited and records a song and they show you it happening. And th- the reason that that is so important, but it's it's so hard for people to have facilities like that is because it goes back to that imperfection thing because it's being recorded like that. And so many of those records like you're talking about were recorded exactly the way we're talking about, especially if you go back to old blues records where they had one mic in a room and the, you know, the harmonica was loud. Why why was the harmonica loud? Because he was closer to the microphone. Yeah. And it keeps all those coughs in the background, like old Led Zeppelin recordings were like a baby's crying or the phone ringing. I used to go, I used to go to like the the, the blues section of uh, Rasputin Records and Campbell and get you know uh, muddy waters and stuff and like that shit sounds like fucking terrible. Oh yeah, but but it sounds badass at the same time. Like you know, it's, you wouldn't want to hear a clean recording of those songs, right? right? And my grams used to listen to a lot of like uh, old country, like uh, blue sort of early early bluegrass Appalachia stuff. And right, that shit's raw as fuck, dude. It, and that was probably all room mics too. Real, yeah. When you hear these people playing, you know, finger picking and playing mandolin and stuff, you're just like, "That's that's legit. That's not a fucking contact instrument in someone's Ableton Live." Right. <laughs> it's kind of like film photography too. When you think about film photography versus digital, you know, as digital as digital photography has kind of taken over the world, and it's understandable why. Um, because I want to take a picture of that. Well, I'm going to take a thousand pictures. And one of those is going to be the right shot. But when you were shooting with film, you better be prepared. You're in the dark room all like, well, God yeah. dang it. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the other thing about this crazy about film. I just like somebody gave me a film camera last year. And I haven't shot film since, you know, like film was, you know, before digital. So I haven't shot it in decades. And I took these roll of film and I'm like, I realized like how how much faith there was in that because you're you're hoping you got the shot. You have no idea. Now we know like instantly, like oh, I didn't get it. Let me take it again. Yeah, I'm sure they were like, "What? Oh, oh, my ISO is is this and whatever." Is my f stop nowadays? Be like ISO what f stop? Yeah, that that's and that's the thing. Same with those musicians, you know, like you said with the finger picking and all that. Why were they so proficient at what they were doing? Because they practiced like motherfuckers before they had to go record because they knew they were probably only going to get one take. Um, I was, uh, when I was in, I was in Maine about two weeks ago, uh, visiting my sister and, uh, I had 
my Prime, my Amazon Prime on my uh, phone, and I was just, what can I watch? So I, I looked and I found this that uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers uh, documentary. Have you have you watched that? No, I haven't. I want to though. I love you. Got to watch that. That's good. It's like four hours long. It's really really Ooh, thorough. That's and awesome. They 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 had you know it's ex- you know extensive interviews with the band um, and collaborators etc. This is I think two thousand seven or eight. Um, pretty much them at the height of, of, of their careers. So it's cool. You get this really remarkable insight um, into the band's dynamics, et cetera. And uh, they, you know, they're one of those bands that uh, had to play it all live in the room. And, you know, they're, they're, I think their first hit single, maybe the first record came out like 1979 or something. Mm-hmm. And they were very much an eighties band. And, uh, all the way through, they were trying to get the live take um, as a band, and um, I just thought, "Wow, dude, that's that doesn't exist anymore." <laughs> I don't know who does that. All I'm right. sure there are bands that do that. I mean, obviously, I don't think that's a lost art at all. But um, you know, they could have just like had Tom come in and lay down the acoustic over the drums, and then have the bass guy come in some other time, and you know, they could have. And maybe they did sometimes do it that way, but I think by and large, full effort most of the time. Well, that's why you got to love those old Phil Spector recordings, right? Because all those guys were playing live at the same time, but it wasn't like a normal band because Phil Spector and his wall of sound shit, you'd be like, okay, we need six drummers and we need four people playing this on the piano. And, you know, so there's like 40 people in this room right. and somebody fucks up. Guess what? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has to do it again. There was always that rumor about Billy Corgan doing like, you know, 36 guitars over, um, you know, Cherub Rock or some shit. I, oh, I, I, can you imagine if, if, if some megalomaniac got his way, how, <laughs> what it would take to like record some crazy shit uh, live like that? This is what I'll say about that. Cause I don't want to be the guy that's like, you know, you, fuck digital i i i'm i'm a digital musician i write electronic music all the time here's what i'll say though i'll say if anyone's listening if you're an artist that has a talent and plays an instrument or as a band like i challenge you to try to do it that way because that shit ain't easy and that's uh the way that it's been done for way longer than it's been done digitally i know it's easy to try to you know do overdubs and to multi-track that way but uh, I'd love to see anyone out there give that a go because it's not easy. Oh, yeah. Just imagine all of the music that we heard, how much of it was recorded on a four track. And anybody that's tried to use a four track, it's not fucking easy. It is, four tracks are difficult. They <laughs> get your levels, you know, you got quiet parts, you got your loud parts. I never recorded to a four track, so I shouldn't talk. Uh, Ryan Hernandez, if I remember correctly, he can correct me, but I know that uh, I, I'm pretty sure I'm po- that it was he him. probably did. They were floating around all the time. I know a lot of like singer songwriters are always like, "I'm going to go into the woods with the four track." Well, the hardest shit was like those five member bands. You got a four track. Guess what? If you have four track and you have a five member band, not everybody gets their own track. You gotta bounce it down. So okay, so this one is bass and drums together. Hmm. You sure you want to do that? Because it's not gonna have as much punch. Okay, well let's put two guitars on the same track. You sure you wanna do that? 
a lot of questions. You know, and those were digital has the advantage in the sense that you don't have to make those sacrifices, right? But sometimes those sacrifices are also why things sounded the way they sound. That's why I'm I'm kind of like if I go into like I'm obviously not anti-digital because I listen to streaming music all the time. But when I go into streaming, if I see two versions of an album, one's the original version and one's a digital remaster, I always listen to the original. You know, it's like, oh yeah, you brought up the guitar louder in this mix. But the version of that song that people have been listening to for 30 years had the guitar buried. I want to hear that. I've almost felt like if uh, I was on a deserted island and I was, you know, somehow had a laptop and (laughs) a guitar or whatever, that all I would need to process and make it um, sound good would be an EQ, a compressor, uh, a reverb, and a delay. Just four plugins. That's all I would need. Yeah, reverb is huge, huge. Yeah. <laughs> if I had those just four, you know, and that's why when I see, you know, I'm all, I, I, I follow some uh, plug-in manufacturers and they're always like, oh, flash sale, you know, and I'm just like another fucking compressor, another <laughs> multi-band compressor. And uh, I'm, I'm just like, I always think about my deserted island. I, like, I shouldn't need all this stuff. Like, um, and, and so I always just kind of get thrifty and not buy, I don't buy shit. Um, cause you can get like bogged down in all those options, you know, you really don't need all that stuff to make something sound good. If you know how to sculpt sound with those four tools. Well, that, uh, the essential playlist that I was talking about earlier that I made, one of the things that I put in there was, um, I think it's called with the lights off or with the lights on that Nirvana thing that they released after he died that had a, pretty much demos for everything. And then a bunch of live versions of shit. Okay. Normally I hate live albums because I feel like I don't, I, if I want to hear it live, I'd be there live. The, the live recordings never really capture the energy for me. Um, with the exception of Neil Young albums, just because you'll never hear him play guitar like that on the re- recorded mm-hmm. albums. Um, but the that Nirvana album, or I guess it's really a compilation or a box set, I love it because it's so fucking broken. And, you know, Kurt's voice is awful on some of them. And they're demos. And it's just like this freedom in the sound of it because they're not worried about, like, dial this in and dial that in. You know, like, like to them, like... Well, I know that when they went in, one of the things they had a problem with was Nevermind was that it was too perfected, you know, that they made it sound too clean. So to see that there's a digital remaster of an album that was, you know, a cleanup of a cleanup that they didn't want to happen is kind of insulting. You know, this this guy is dead, but we're going to do, not only did we do what he didn't want to do, but we did it twice. And it doesn't sound better. That's a, you know, Nirvana's like, when I think about them, it's like I, there's there's two sort of uh, descriptors that I see in my mind, and one is like they're they're at odds with each other. One is clean, and the other one is just gnarled. You know, I I think it's because they use chorus in some of the songs. Oh yeah, there's something about the yeah. You're right. Never mind. You know, when you listen to that album, it sounds sounds like a pop, dirty ass rock record. Yep. 
emphasis on pop though, kind of at the same time. That's why everybody got pissed off with in utero, right? Because, oh, it sounded a little bit cleaner, but so he, and he knew they were going to do that. So he fucked up like the song structure and wrote a song called Rape Me. Dude, that, song, that album sounds like fucking gnarly, dude. <laughs> it was, uh, that was Albini, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, those, those uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of like, there's definitely a lot of condenser microphones that are just like um, sweating balls as um, <laughs> amplified sounds hit the the, the diaphragm because <laughs> it's just that's a gnarly album. Yeah. Gnarly. Oh yeah. It's got oh, a lot of chaos in it, which is what I love about them. My favorite was really officially not an album was always Incesticide mm. because oh, yeah, yeah. it just sounds like you know, like a muddy and lo-fi, but that's, that's the kind of band they were. And I'm not saying, you know, like this is how Beyonce should record. Beyonce should record the way Beyonce records because that's the kind of music she makes. But Nirvana sounds better. Analog, broken, dirty, levels wrong. That's how they belong. I'm sure sure Beyonce would agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) On Nirvana? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like, it's not for everyone, but... Uh, yeah, but I miss you know. I think, I think that we were lucky. Um, everyone's still lucky because that music is still around. You can listen to it. It's in the it's in the the human archive. But right. Um, but we were lucky to uh, to 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 be listening to uh, what was being created. I think the '90s were kind of an interesting decade because, um, you know, when you watch like Stranger Things, like season three, I'm watching right now, and they're in this. So mall and i'm just like damn my wife's like it's the age were weird like it made me miss on? it though at the same time me too i was very nostalgic for walden books you're like i am nostalgic for shit that i probably <laughs> hated at the time <laughs> um, you know like the curly hair and like the clothes oh, that yeah. she's wearing like i hated that at the time but now i'm like dude i kind of miss that so much rouge on the on the cheeks uh yeah. but spray when you go to when you go into the '90s, it was sort of like the artists of the '90s were. I don't know, man. They were, they were exhausted by the '80s. weren't about that shit <laughs> at all. The '90s were like the cocaine hangover. Yeah, you know, everybody just looks like somebody just fucking beat them through the whole night, Never and they wake up and they're like, "I just want to put on this fucking flannel, and I'm not <laughs> even going to wash my fucking hair." That was the '90s. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna fly to LA uh, to shoot some music video. Uh, meet some executives. I'm not going to change my clothes. Um, I'm going to play a showcase. It's Troubadour. I'm going to get a record deal and I'm still not going to change my clothes. I'm going to come back to, in this case, let's say Seattle. If you're talking about Nine Inch Nails, maybe Milwaukee. And I'm going to stay in my fucked up clothes and I'm going to go to band practice the next day. And then maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll shower, but only if I'm going to get laid. Maybe. I, mean, I don't want to like... I don't want to. I don't want to uh, to offend um, Chris Cornell. Maybe he, he showered. Uh-huh. He probably I showered. Think, but I think they were, in a way, like it was a cultural exhaustion. That that grunge, in a sense, was was emblematic of of just exhaustion of the excesses of the eighties. And yeah. and no. while it's easy to bemoan the excesses, I do miss like the simplicity of that excess. You know, maybe it went from like cocaine to heroin or something. Yeah, so, that's true. Like up to down. Yeah, that's definitely true. Because you know, like I when I say like I, you know, at one hand I say like, oh, 
you know, the 80s were disgusting and they were exhausting and all these things. But then I miss them. What I miss is they weren't as exhausting, even in their biggest excess, as I feel like the digital world is and, you know, the internet. But, you know, there still wasn't that much stuff coming at us all at once. And that's why malls are kind of nostalgic feeling because you're like, when you were at the mall, you were doing something. Yeah. You know, you weren't looking at your phone. There weren't other things. You were just there. You were with people. You're looking at stuff. It was still just one activity. There were no LEDs. Yeah. <laughs> no TVs. You in the mall. I was terrified of that. I was like, oh, um, I was like, Chad's going to ask me uh, what books I'm reading. And, and, and uh, <laughs> what I was like thinking all of them, like I, I can't concentrate on anything in 2019. So I'm, I'm reading a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm, I'm on, here. I'm, I'm reading like 16 books. Looking at Politico. I'm uh, <laughs> watching a YouTube video. Then I'm like posting gifts uh, to a chat room. And then I'm yeah, it's just like, I can't fucking concentrate in 2019. Who can? I'm going to see if I can find this. I'm going to send it to you and I'll put it in the show notes. It's, if, speaking of the mall nostalgia, somebody took Toto's Africa and they remixed it to sound like it was playing through the speakers in an empty mall. <laughs> it's it's such a fucking weird thing. And I was like, what? Who would want to hear that? And then I listened to it and I'm like, oh, that's weird. And somebody... I'll find this too. There's an article. I want to say it was for the like, like New Yorker or maybe The Guardian where somebody wrote like listening to like this mall remix of Toto's Africa made me oddly nostalgic and sad. Yeah. Yep. The other day I was driving, I was driving, I mean, I was actually, you know, driving uh, in the South Bay and uh, I put on, um, um, wrapped around your finger, um, the police, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's got that. Uh, I think that's the same song. Yeah. And, and, and I just was instantly transported to, I just, I, I just saw myself in the backseat of my dad's sob with my, um, with my socks pulled up to my knees, um, you know, with those little <laughs> bands of color around, around the calves, uh, with our bowl haircuts going to Toys R Us, uh, you know, in, yeah. in Eastside, uh, San Jose. <laughs> it's like those, those awkward shorts with a little slit up the side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that were too short uh, to begin with. <laughs> and I was just, man, I, I almost started crying. I was just sort of like, that's life, you know? You, you go through it and you go through these periods of it and you forget about them. And then all of a sudden, like 20 years later, 30 years later, you hear a song and you're like, fuck. Well, I think that <laughs> that's one of the things that's really... Um, I, unfortunately, you could probably, even though I love it, I'm group stranger things into this but there's a lot of pump fakes on nostalgia in culture right now where it's like they take something that you could be nostalgic for and they hand it back to you but in a way it's not really it's not actually tapping into that feeling of nostalgia like you're talking because for 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 all intent and purposes nostalgia is a it's a sad emotion it's not completely sad but it is a longing for something that is past something has gone by mm-hmm. um so that is that's a, that is essentially a downer emotion so when they take these things and repackage them they try to cut out the downer part of it so you know it's like pulling it up and making it look jazzier and like here's you know like and they don't give you the time to feel that 
maybe Stranger Things doesn't fit in there because I do feel like they do invest so much into it. Like it does. There's there's certain things about the way that they do the nostalgia where it's like, you know, like uh, oh you you haven't finished the season, so I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Yeah, please don't tell me. The, the, you'll know what I'm talking about. Where it's completely something that stands out. Okay. For the season, and then we'll talk. I'll keep that in mind. And anybody that's watched it knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I usually feel like that sort of uh, pump fake nostalgia when it comes to sort of when music music stuff comes back around and people are like doing, you know, some snare drum with huge reverb on it, a la Phil Collins or something. Then I, mm-hmm. I, it does, I don't, I don't get, I don't get the nostalgia. Usually, I just I'm like that's that happened, that went down, and now you're bringing it back and. Yeah, it's more of a callback instead of nostalgia, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, one one thing I wanted to ask you about before I forget. The last time we talked, you had this album that you weren't that you hadn't released yet that you'd been sitting on. And then after we finished the episode, you ended up putting that out. I did, yeah. What, I actually what, took kind of a break from promoting it uh because I was looking for a house, but I'm going to get back on promoting. Did you play a show for it yet? You said you wanted to play a show. You no, know, I haven't played any any shows for it. Um, and I never, never, I never really planned to, honestly. You know, if, if it works out that way, then I'll do it. But like, I, I don't want to necessarily, I don't necessarily want to like play a show unless I can find a good spot to do it and uh, make sure that the show is successful. And honestly, um, I've kept such a low profile in the Bay Area for so long. I don't know if I could or or where I would do it. So it really wasn't about necessarily promoting it in some live setting, even though I've been playing a lot of those songs um, right. in different contexts for a while. It was mainly just about like um, getting it out online uh, and sort of explaining how it was put together um, through some video stuff that I was using to kind of... Yeah, I thought that was... The more interesting thing about it too is that you put those journal entries, or not journal entries, sorry, blog entries that explained the the song, and I thought that was fascinating. I w- I kind of like I saw that and I'm like, I wish people did this for every album. Like, tell me how this song came together, please. I've seen a little bit more of that actually since I did that. I you know I'm a fan of of um, of Yuna from Malaysia, and I she's put out an album recently, and I think she's done a little bit of you know, supplementary video stuff to kind of explain how things were put together. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it felt right for this because, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was sitting around writing music in a sort of boring, you know, environment kind of, that there would be no story to tell. And this, in this, in this instance, I was traveling around at all these places and gathering sound and, uh, weaving them into music. And so it was very, it, it felt more natural for me to kind of show uh, where this stuff was coming from. It's really hard because, you know, you end up at some temple in Cambodia or Myanmar and the, there's some crazy um, uh, sound and uh, atmospheric um, stimulation going on. And, and it's really hard to convey um, that to people, you know, um, I, I, I can, they can hear it in the song and be like, Oh, it sounds like there's a bunch of bells or something, but then it also adds a little bit more, 
uh, context if I can actually show some of the footage, the video footage that I got that those sounds from so that there's a little bit more context so they can see like sort of um, how far, how far the, the, the sounds have been, I don't know, taken into some new idea. Right. Like the train sound in the first song. Yeah. Or it's like the, the door opening sound and well, not the door opening, but like the, the chime of the door opening. It's yeah. like, what is that sound? That is a very strange sound and it's looping. And then you find out what it is and you're like, whoa, that's really cool. It opens it up in a way. Yeah. I always kind of felt like I want to keep the faith to the places that I was uh, writing music about that I had to kind of put as much of those places in there as possible. I mean, some of those songs like the Bangkok one, I think that's the one you're actually talking, maybe talking about um, that, that has a lot, you know, there's a lot of music in there, like where I'm, where I'm, where I've added to it, you know, in the studio setting. Um, but like, uh, I, I, I always felt like if I was going to kind of, capture these places i needed to put as much environmental sound in there and so i always kind of had it you know was, was walking around with an ear for that like when i would be you know looking for stuff to record if i heard anything remotely musical to my ears i would record it and um hopefully put it in and for everybody listening the album we're talking about is called isles i'll put obviously show notes show notes obviously i always always put everything that i link or talk about linked in the show notes um another project that you talked about last time we talked about was the thing you were working on with steve about the the loss of your father's how's that coming um that's 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 like what i'm mainly focused on right now um and we're still working on it. i think we're about half done uh it was kind of put on hold because of my move and he 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 was his studio situation was he was uh, refurbishing his basement. So he finished that project. And now we're recently kind of just getting back to discussing it and uh, um, sharing ideas again. Uh, so that's like the priority for me right now is to finish that. And I'm pretty sure Low Roar will be on tour next year. And so I need to, I need to just try to, focus my attention on this two years project with Steve to get it done. Um, You record with them too, right? You're not just live band. With uh, Low Roar or with Steve? Yeah. Actually, you know, um, this recording cycle, uh, we, we talked kind of about, about recording. Um, but, um, the way that, that, uh, Ryan has always written music has been, either by himself or with his producer from London. And since we're all the way over here, it just made sense for him to kind of go um, do, do his thing uh, and write, write that way as he normally would. I definitely like got, you know, gave a lot of input on the songs, but I wouldn't say I was a a writer on the material, which is fine. Um, You know, like, it's, it's it would be fun to write with uh as, as low roar but like um i definitely have my hands full just uh conceptualizing the live show with him and alton when when we when we get ready to go on the road that's plenty enough work for me <laughs> to, not to mention the other projects yeah. you're working on yourself yeah um <laughs> We, we does run empty sometimes. <laughs> we typically like we don't necessarily play the songs as they're recorded, and um, I think that kind of goes to this our sensibility that like the live realm is a special place, and that's where 
your human um, parts of yourself, you know, get put on display. And so we try to build in a lot of, uh, a lot of ourselves into the live show and uh, we change things up and we do things differently. And, um, and so uh, it's a lot of arranging and um, figuring, figuring out what the layers are going to be and who's going to play what involved in that process. It's just a really fun, really fun process for me. I miss it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal a question from another podcaster. I heard this question. I'm like, fuck, that's a really good question. So I'm going to steal it. Um, what, what's something that you think about all the time that you rarely get to talk about? That's a tough question because, you know, like I, I don't, I don't like to necessarily um, lie to people, but I also want to be protective of my privacy. Um, but um, I think about sort of the relationships that I'm in, in my life a lot. And um, the, you know, as you get older, uh, you start to make realizations about your childhood, what you had and what you didn't have, um, Mm -hmm. the way that you were brought up well and the way that you could have used more help. And, um, you know, I think, uh, since I've been married, I've really like kind of taken a deep look at that stuff. I think for a very long time, I was probably, extremely selfish trapped in kind of a haze of marijuana use and um, just retreating to music. And um, a lot of things didn't get handled. And um, so that's one of the things I think about a lot is, um, you know, I feel like I, I've, I've always struggled setting boundaries with people. I never knew it though. Never had any idea that I was doing that. I always thought I just got to let people do what they want to do and say what they want to say and be how they want to be. Uh, but that that leads to a lot of, um, of of personal strife when you don't speak up for yourself or advocate for yourself when you should. And I know that I'm definitely beating around the bush. That's, this is like a public forum, so I don't want to talk of about course. personal personal stuff. But that's one of the things I think about a lot. And what I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, toxicity in relationships, um, how to handle those things, um, how to tone down my own um, issues uh, in my interactions with people. Uh, My dad always liked to get a rise out of people. Like that was his thing. Sometimes he would go and be kind of sexist or, or, um, you know, just making appropriate comments for the sake of getting a rise out of people. And I feel like I'm kind of, you know, I've kind of inherited a bit of that myself in terms of um, the way I am with people, you know, maybe crossing, crossing the line occasionally. So yeah, to answer your question, that's, that that's on my mind probably daily. <laughs> I think that's one of the benefits of aging, isn't it? That yeah. we start to reconcile ourselves with, uh, with the past, but then also with the implications and and the results in ourselves from the past, and and in a way, and taking responsibility instead of, I think a lot of people when they think about the past, like oh this was broken or this was good, whatever they don't, um, they tend to 
pass that on. Like, oh, I can't do anything. No, you know, you still made the choice or whatever. And like, oh, you weren't like for me. One of the things that resonates with me there is I was selfish for a long time too. And I think for me that um, I was an only child. Are you an only child? No, I have an older brother. Okay. But I got my way all the time. Ah, the baby. Yeah. So similar experience with the with the only child too, right? You know, there's nobody nobody else to fight for attention from. So I get all the attention, and oftentimes that would lead to me in similar to what you're saying, like being provocative, kicking the hornet's nest a little bit, and a lot of times that would, without me necessarily intending to, but still resulting in me being an asshole mm-hmm. and me hurting people's feelings or. You know, just me saying things that I think are funny that maybe nobody else thinks is funny. And reconciling that, but then going, okay, that comes from this and this, I I learned this from here and all this, but then still being able to save myself. But I was still the person that said those things. I was still the person that made those choices. Those things that happened to me that developed me into this person capable of that are not to blame. I am. And that, that's, the, for me, has been one of the beautiful things about age is like, okay, when you start taking responsibility of things and you start resolving yourself with the past, you start becoming more complete than you've ever been. Yeah, definitely working on that. Like, I just, I don't feel like, I, like I'm there yet, but... Um, if there is a there even, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I definitely see, you know, why people kill themselves because they feel like, they just can't, they just can't, they can't stomach, you know, there's different ways, you know, I don't, I don't want to necessarily pigeonhole anyone, but the way I'm specifically think, thinking of what I'm specifically thinking of is someone who feels like they've caused so much damage or left so much um, trouble in their wake that um, there's no real way to sort of uh, get out of that or get past it. Yeah, the, the road or the hill seems too steep. Whether it's a divorce or 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 um, you know, you've you've personally failed in some way. Um, but I also think that like um, that at least personally that uh, that I don't think there's any life lived that doesn't have that dynamic at some point or another show its face for 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 that individual to have to deal with um, and to um, make peace with. Well, and a great way to connect this with what we were talking about with uh, imperfections and music and all of the stuff that we've talked about from the bulk of this conversation. When you look at the people, and obviously I'm going to be speaking of of public people, personas, since we all share them. When you look at people like Keith Richards or you know these people who have stuck around for a really long time, they were fucked up. They did awful things that they regret, um, but they stuck around. And as they stuck around and they moved past it and they moved through those phases and they became something different and they matured, they become like these respected elder statesmen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what's in it for all of us, right? Why do you stick around through all of this? Why do you change? Why do you mature and all that? It's because the imperfections are what make you that really interesting older person. It's very noble. It's, uh you know, that, that there's only, there, there are only so many, you know, um, entanglements and, uh, and, and issues and problems and, um, relationship difficulties that you, uh, 
you know, permutations of that that you see. And then, you know, as you get to be, you know, 70, 80, you know, you've kind of seen all of it pretty much. I think at least in terms of humans, I can, where humans are concerned. And yeah, and, and if you can get, if you can graduate up there, and you still and you're not jaded, and you're still and you and you and you you're respectful to, towards people, and uh, then I think there's a you get you gain some nobility there. I think I like to get to that point. Uh, I'm going to misquote it, but there's I think it's in Vertigo. Uh, they say something along the lines of old politicians, or no old buildings, politicians and prostitutes all become respectable with age. That's what I'm aiming to be. <laughs> Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it would only be fair since uh, we've talked about uh, heaviness to end this on this heavy note. So uh, if you guys want to support this show, please go over to uh, Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash Holyful Productions. Become a patron. You'll get access to bonus content uh, for $5 or above. And one example of that is... Uh, Dave and I are going to continue this conversation for a little bit and that will be available for the patrons and actually it's going to go up right after I finish recording it and uh, this episode is going to go up a week after the bonus content. So it's another bonus as you get that stuff early. If you want to keep up with uh, Mr. David and everything he's doing, where can they find you? Where, where do you want to... Where do you want to direct them? Uh, well, the easiest thing would be to either go to my website at davidknight.org. That's uh, D-A-V-I-D-K-N-I-G-H-T.org. Or music.sleepcomabath.com. Uh, from either of those places, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. And on the website, too, for this from random, random badassery.fireside.fm, which is you know the main site for this. He has a profile, and on his profile has links for everything as well. So you can always do that. Um, if you guys want to follow the show on Instagram or Twitter, it's a random badassery, all one word. And if you're listening in Overcast, please hit the star, share this episode with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And normally when I'm here with Tom or Lamb, I would say bye-bye, babies. But I think it'd be far more interesting if we say something along the lines of, um, David, do you have any words of wisdom to take us out of this episode? Um, yes. I do. I think they're the same as the ones from last time, which were like something to the degree of treat people with kindness, forgive yourself. This is Rambling Bad Ass Room.